darkness persists in our world. Sometimes that darkness is not so much front of mind, particularly when we might think of different earthly experiences of darkness. In comparison with many places in the world and with much of human history, modern-day Western society offers us so much redemption from earthly darkness, whatever that darkness might be. For example, uh, our life expectancy in Australia is something between 81 to 85 years of age, which is phenomenal compared to uh, even in, in history, what life expectancies used to be. We have pills, medicines and surgery that is able to alleviate many health problems. Uh, Australia is a net exporter of food, showing that we have an abundance of food here. Uh, by world standards, Australian house, house sizes on average are the largest in the world. I think I've got my facts right there. Think about that. Don't worry about ancient Israel. Australia is the modern day land of the, uh, flowing, that flows with milk and honey. And yet, for all its provisions, darkness persists, even here in our own backyard, like a persistent itch that won't let up. Uh, mental health struggles persist, uh, rampant in our community, uh, internal securities and struggles on the inside, relationship breakdowns everywhere where they become on the rocks, whether marriages or friends or uh, family members. Maybe a sudden unexpected accident occurs on the road or you receive a difficult diagnosis. Or perhaps it's simply facing the many woes of old age that begin to bite. Not to mention the ever real threat of always having much deeper and more widespread felt darkness just on the horizon. Uh, with the so-called doomsday clock, the clock that was created in 1947 as a response to potential nuclear threat, now being set apparently to 90 seconds to midnight. Now, I'm not really one for gimmicks like this, but it does point out an obvious thing, where things like the war in Ukraine is certainly a very dark thing. And I think it would be naive to think that it couldn't escalate even further. I wonder if you're here this morning ever having experienced your own uh, patch of darkness in your life. Maybe you're here feeling today that you're in the midst of some struggle or sense of darkness today, whatever that darkness is for you. Uh, when it comes to this idea of darkness in the Bible, it's always upfront about our human experiences. Furthermore, the Bible gets to the heart of this darkness, namely the deeper spiritual darkness that gives birth to every other type of darkness that you and I face. Now, in the book of Ruth that we've been travelling through these past few weeks, uh, we've been given a front row seat uh, into the inner workings of this Israelite family, uh, a bit like a fly on the wall at the dinner table. We're able to experience a bit of their turning points and ups and downs in their life. A family who experienced themselves some really real and tragic darkness. And through their story, we, we see God at work in overcoming their darkness. 
A God that also overcomes ours. If we place our trust in him and the Lord Jesus. And today we're going to be exploring this theme together and how our passage teaches us really how we can face this darkness and experience God's redemption in it. Uh, And I just want to spend actually a few moments um, really just getting into the story itself before I move on uh, to how this applies to us today. I think it's a a wonderful narrative and I think we can just enjoy it uh, and work through some of the details to get together. So I'd like to encourage you to uh, keep your Bibles open and uh, work through it with me. And so I just want to think about the backstory here for a few moments. Uh, here in Ruth chapter 3, uh, again, we have a master's pen at work. Uh, we have the plan, the plan carried out, and then the outcome of this plan. Now, what was this plan before us? A risky one, indeed. Uh, for those who have been travelling with us these last few weeks, you'll know Uh, about Naomi and Ruth and their situation. How they're destitute, poor widows, having lost everything in the land of Moab. And now here, Naomi returns to Bethlehem, back to her own people, Israel, in desperation. And things are beginning to turn a little bit for the better for them. Uh, As they benefit from the kind generosity of Boaz, a relative who allows them to glean barley in his fields. Now Naomi's been thinking, brooding, you could say. She becomes the brainchild of an elaborate scheme. Ruth, isn't Boaz our relative? This relates to her comments back at the end of chapter 2, where she calls Boaz one of our redeemers. Something Ruth herself shortly calls Boaz. Uh, I think it's helpful for us as we understand this passage to understand what he's, t- he's talking about here. What is he talking about? Uh, what's she talking about when talking about uh, redeemers? Now, it comes with the idea of being a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. That's what's at play here. Uh, and it seems to be that there are two key uh, passages in the Torah that relate to our situation here. One is Leviticus 25, verses 23 to 28. And then we're going to speak a bit more about that next week. Uh, But in short, it's a passage that relates to uh, the redemption of property for the poor by a redeemer, a male relative who has had a moral obligation to help the poorer people in his family who had lost everything or were poor for whatever reason. The other text is found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Uh, And I'm actually just going to read that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 25. And from verse 5 it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. The husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the na- to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duties of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call to him and speak to him. 
And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, all that's pretty foreign to us reading that today. Uh, but we need to understand the idea that, and uh, the provision of it. How in Old Testament times, uh, in the time where there isn't any security uh, for that particular situation for women who have lost their husbands, uh, that law there is a way of helping perpetuate the family name and, and keep that family alive in Israel and a way of providing for that family. Uh, yes, these concepts are, so, are foreign for us as modern-day Western readers to read, uh, but we just need to un- try and attempt to see it from the viewpoint of ancient Israel and as a means of showing mercy and poor to the needy within that particular context. What is interesting for us today in Ruth chapter 3 is technically Naomi and Ruth's situation doesn't quite fit into either of those passages. So once again we see God's wonderful principle of chesed playing out here. This time Boaz, stepping up to the mark, showing loving kindness, going above and beyond the call of duty and the letter of the law, embodying chesed and living out the principles of love that sit behind the law and the principles of it. And so Naomi schemes a scheme. See, he, Boaz, is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. Now, for anyone hoping to gain uh, Christian dating advice, Ruth chapter 3 is probably a not go-to place. How are we to interpret Naomi's instruction here? I mean, is she asking Ruth to be immoral, to act outside biblical sexual ethics and essentially sleep with Boaz at the threshing floor? I mean, even the text itself on face value is somewhat suggestive, uh, with the Hebrew words uncover, to lie down, and feet often having a double meaning which is overtly sexual in nature. Uh, Furthermore, Ruth's actions might have been interpreted uh, from Boaz as that of a prostitute who may have sought out men like this during times of winnowing and at the threshing floor. But an Israelite reading this passage would immediately understand what the author is trying to teach them through by recording the details of the narrative the way he has. What's happening here is that Ruth and Boaz are purposely being used to contrast Genesis 19. There we saw the birth of the Moabite nation, uh, as well as probably Genesis 38, the story of Tamar that we'll come back to next week. Uh, For an Israelite hearing the Old Testament being read to them, they would have already heard the story of Genesis 19, where the daughters of Lot go to their father and get him drunk and commit incest, sleeping with their father to ensure they had male children and whereby maintaining the family name and heritage. 
And so an Israelite hearing the words here in Ruth chapter 3 would be thinking, ah, here we go again. Ruth the Moabite, just going to be like one of her ancestors and those who came before her. Boaz is not going to be any better. But what happened? None of that. They don't. They don't commit immoral behaviour. Despite the obvious sexual temptation that existed, neither Boaz nor Ruth acted immorally. And so once again, we see them as being held up as people who held firm to God's chesed, his steadfast love. Uh, People of real character, of substance, even in the face of temptation. And so Naomi's risky plan worked. Echoing Boaz's own words in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, Ruth calls Boaz to fulfill his very own words, saying, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And the outcome of the plan was that Boaz was going to settle the matter in the morning. And we'll look into that next week in Ruth chapter 4. Before doing so, he gives Ruth and Naomi six measures of barley, likely the bride price, according to the customs of the day. Having correctly interpreted Ruth's actions and the way she dressed as an indication that her time of mourning over the death of her previous husband was now over, she was now ready to be married again. And so that's a bit about the backstory here. And some of the details that we need to sort of dig into to begin to understand the text. Uh, As we've been saying throughout our series on Ruth, the story is not just some random story that happened long ago about a family we have no connection with. But being God's word, we have truth for us today that we can glean from it for our own lives today. Not only from the characters themselves and their own actions, but how they teach us about the things of God and his bigger picture and story of the gospel. And we can step back from the narrative and see that here. And so, coming out of our passage, there are three applications that I want to draw from it for us today. First, from our passage, it teaches us that we have a need to be redeemed. To be redeemed out of darkness. We see this in how Ruth visiting Boaz in the darkness of night and in need of redemption herself is a picture of us coming to Jesus in our own darkness. To understand this, we must come to terms with how the Bible betrays the human experience in our darkness. Uh, As touched upon earlier, Uh, when it comes to the idea of experiencing a a dark time in one's life, uh, we tend to purely think about temporal earthly things that we might be experiencing. And that certainly is the case in our narrative. Don't get me wrong, uh, the Bible and the book of Ruth lays out dark experiences uh, that they experienced. They had their own family members who passed away. Temporal and earthly darkness is still very much part of the biblical meaning of darkness. But once again, remember the setting. We've got the days of the judges in which these events occurred and how their experiences of darkness related directly to a more sinister inner darkness, to spiritual darkness. These days of the judges 
much like ours today, were days of spiritual depravity, darkness of soul, of godlessness, faithlessness, no personal experiences of the God of the Bible, no genuine worship, no singing his praises. Nothing but silent, self-absorbed hearts dedicated to the worship of self. To sin, to sinful passions. Under Satan's rule as sons of disobedience, as he says in Ephesians 2. Indeed, according to the Bible, all of human history ever since Genesis 3 is in a period that is characterized by a period of darkness. With humanity usurping God from the throne of our hearts, uh, disobeying and rebelling against our King on high, coming then under the rule of sin in a domain of darkness that Paul speaks about in Colossians 1. And so the question for us and each of us is whether we recognize this about the world and about ourselves. If we have the eyes of faith to see the righteousness of sin before a holy God and our need to repent of it and seek forgiveness. We can't appreciate Jesus' offer of salvation unless we first appreciate the grave situation that he is rescuing us out of. And for the Christian, the question is, to what extent have you recognized and, and that you perceive your sin? Shallow knowledge of sin leads to a shallow faith and shallow Christianity, and a shallow love of Jesus. Uh, I recently read a, a personal biography of Spurgeon, and he talked about how uh, in his life he, he interviewed many Christians and spoke to them about the faith, and he talked about how there was a difference in Christians who, uh, you know, they, they were genuine Christian, they had some knowledge of sin, but there were others who uh, understood more deeply their, their own depths of their sin And actually, that was of benefit to their faith in the long run, where they went on and were stronger in their faith because they were able to plumb the depths of their own hearts before the Lord. And so I think there's a challenge for all of us to do that this morning, to not take sin lightly and to really open up our hearts before the Lord in prayer and and come to Him, asking for Him to reveal that to us, that we might address it uh, through Him. In addition to our need to be redeemed, our passage gives us a picture of what it means to be waiting to be redeemed. I'm sure it would have been a nervous wait for Ruth and Naomi to see what was going to happen that next day. A nail-biting exercise. Like Ruth and Naomi who had to wait to see what would happen next. Stay tuned for next week. We too are waiting for the Lord to finish his work of redemption. When you and I experience the ongoing darkness in this world, the persistent sin and its many consequences, it's easy to get discouraged, to give up hope, to feel down, to become overly introspective, perhaps. Part of the difficulty for us in our Christian walk is learning to wait well. A part of this actually means to accept that some things in this life won't change or get better until the life to come. 
Now, that might seem like a strange thing to say. I mean, for a church who is keen to see a genuine change to the gospel and the impact of that in people's lives, that might seem like a strange thing to say. But far from being, this being defeatism or a passive response to God's redemption, this is hope and trust in action when viewed correctly. Examples, examples of this in our ongoing experiences uh, could be of suffering. Suffering in its many forms will persist in this world until Jesus returns. Persecution and opposition to the gospel will persist until Jesus returns. Some consequences of your past choices that you've made or things that have happened to you may persist for the rest of your life until Jesus returns. The believer then is called to act in faith, waiting for the final day to draw near and dawn. When Jesus descends on the clouds with the sound of a trumpet and with the voice of an archangel. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For the Christian, it's also true that our wait is partly over. For on the cross, Jesus did defeat the powers of darkness, having faced the darkness on our behalf. Uh, In the Gospels, it's recorded that at his crucifixion, there was this unusual darkness that covered the land when Jesus was on the cross. A physical sign of the darkness and spiritual darkness of our sin that he was taking upon himself. And now, having died on the cross for our sin and rising again from the dead, a new day has dawned. A day of God's kingdom, a day of salvation. And like those six measures of barley Boaz gave to Ruth as a bit of a down payment, God has given Christians a bit of a down payment ourselves ahead of our final redemption, giving us the Holy Spirit as a gift, a helper, and a guarantee of what is yet to come as well, and that we are his children, adopted as his people. The Holy Spirit applies this work of Christ uh, on the cross and in his resurrection to our hearts, like a healing balm for our souls, gifting us with the forgiveness of sins and giving us new spiritual life. Now, like Ruth, who tidied herself up through the Spirit of Christ in us, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. God then has spread his protective and caring wing over us, making us his and uh, in this glorious marriage between Christ and the church. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 says, speaking of Christians, saying, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. So speaking of uh, the final day to come. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Part of learning to wait well then also includes a deeper appreciation of what Jesus 
has already done for you. How he has already defeated Satan and our sin, our sin no longer rules on our throne. Yes, we still fight it, but its, its power has been broken. And Christians, we often forget that. So we've considered then our one application, our need to be redeemed. And, and what does it mean as Christians to be waiting to be redeemed? How we uh, somehow, uh, in some ways, the wait is over, but in other ways, we are still waiting uh, for more to come. Uh, our third application that comes from our passage is acting. Uh, what does it mean to be acting like we're redeemed? Uh, in this way, our passage challenges us to pursue and value godly character in, in ourselves and in others above things like status power or ability. Uh, on the one hand, our, the narrative makes a point of highlighting how stark the differences were between Ruth and Boaz. I mean, Boaz was a successful, prominent Israelite male who owned property, had servants, and was well respected in the community. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite foreigner, poor, widowed, destitute, and virtually had nothing. And yet despite these differences, on the other hand, chapters 2 and 3 describe both of them as being people of real character, being worthy, people of substance. I mean, despite their differences, what God was valuing was their character, their godliness, being people of genuine faith and who lived that out. In that sense, they were on equal playing field. Our world today so easily plays into celebrity status or power or wealth of individuals as that is what gains attention and influence. And the church too can get sucked into this, seeing someone who is capable, who has gifts and abilities, but not the character to match. And so character does come before ability. The gospel flips this thinking on its head. It's not powerful people of worldly status that God will listen to, but those who are humble of heart, who come to God as poor, needy, lowly servants asking for grace, and who, having received it from the hands of a lowly servant saviour, go into the world with a humble message of grace, with the weakness of the cross held high. A part of displaying uh, this godly character then from our passage also means doing the right thing when other people aren't watching. I mean, clearly the situation for Ruth and Boaz was a little dicey. They had no one else around to prove or appear righteous before. Yet even when no one else was around and in this situation, they still held their integrity. And so what are you like when no one else is watching? Is your public life consistent with your private life? And so, Christian, in the face of darkness that, is persist, that persists in our world, are you waiting well? Firstly, by setting your hope in the gospel, the good news of Jesus' redemption, that even today you dwell in his light. Not seeking to earn your own salvation, but resting in his redemption. Resting and waiting 
also for it to one day be completed when Jesus returns. Secondly, are you waiting well in how you display that light to others in how you live? Are you a person of substance, of character, going above the call of duty because Jesus did so for you? If you are listening here today and yet to accept Jesus as your saviour, God also invites you to respond, to experience something of his salvation and his light, to receive for yourself the hope and promise of eternal life through him. Well, how do you do this? As I've said, it's first recognising the spiritual darkness that exists, not just in the world, but in your own soul that you are a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. And it's turning to Jesus to let his light shine in your hearts, having the knowledge that you are forgiven and and for him to come and make his home in your heart. This is a work God needs to do in you. For Satan ordinarily blinds people from this truth of the gospel. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 to 6, Paul there says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning, not yet a believer, do you see your need of a saviour? Uh, and will you come to him? Second uh, Corinthians chapter six, verse two says, Behold, Now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The gospel is an urgent call to seek Jesus why he may still be found. Is that urgent to you? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we've considered uh, the darkness of this world, uh, we confess that uh, in moments of darkness that we experience, we've we find it so hard to, to uh, stick out in our faith and, and stay strong with, uh, in our faith with you and see your goodness in it. Father, as we grapple with the fact that darkness will persist in this world until you return, uh, that is a, a hard thing for us in this life to face. Particularly when we experience, have patches of that uh, that we go through a patch of really difficult times, whether it is circumstances or suffering or bodily health or things that are happening in the world or internal struggles of mind or heart that we have, Lord. The the outworking of sin is so terrible uh, and we, we wrestle with it in various degrees every day. But Father, in the midst of all this darkness, I pray firstly that you might convict us more deeply of our sin and our spiritual darkness, how you need to make us new from the inside out. And I pray, Lord, that as we face temporal, earthly struggles, Lord, that 
you might fill us up with uh, great spiritual life, that we might be able to face them uh, boldly and strongly with you, Lord, with your help and with the amazing gift of the gospel and your grace. Thank you that you promised to never be uh, uh, not with us in times of struggles, Lord, that you will be with us in our moments of trials and struggles. And Father, as we meet others along the road who they themselves are experiencing this darkness that exists, Lord, help us to be people of the light, that we be able to point others to Jesus and the hope that we have in him. May people see that there is something different about us, not because we've earned that or it's goodness that we've made of ourselves, but it's goodness that you've given us and made true in us. And Father, Lord, as we consider uh, what is to come, Lord, help us to fix our sights on the unseen, that Jesus will return one day and make all things new. That the kingdom of darkness in all its entirety will be completely done away with in the end. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to do that for us, to go that amazing length that you did on the cross to save us out of our terrible plight. Jesus, we worship you for that. Amen.